بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله أما بعد فإن أحسن الكلام كلام الله وخير الهدى هدى محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم وإن شر الأمور محتثاتها وكل محتثة بدعة وكل بدعة ضلالة وكل ضلالة في النار So we continue today with another short beneficial lecture from Sheikh Ubaid Rahimahullah and today's lecture or today's short a reminder is based upon the hadith of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam in which he said to the companions Fawallahi Mal Fakra Aksha Alikum which means by Allah it is not poverty that I fear for you the most. It's not poverty that I fear for you the most. So this particular hadith, the whole hadith and the circumstances behind this statement, uh, the Sheikh has extracted four or five benefits that we can take uh, from this particular hadith, and this is what we are going to look at in today's lesson, insha'Allah ta'ala. So, after uh, saying, Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen, wa sallallahu wa sallam ala nabina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'een, after praising Allah and sending salat and salam upon the Messenger of Allah um, the reader uh, begins to read the uh, text of the hadith qala al-imam al-bukhari rahimahullah so this hadith is found in the sahih of al-bukhari and it is in the book fi kitab ar-raqa'iq in the chapter to do with the heart melting traditions those hadiths which when you listen to them they soften and they melt your heart. And it's in the chapter, chapter, Bab ma yuhzar min zahrati dunya wa tanafusi fiha. It's in the chapter to do with taking caution against the glitter of the world. The glitter, the world and its glitter being cautious of that not being caught in that and not to compete with each other with respect to that the glitter of the world so the hadith itself uh, after the isnad the reciter mentions the uh, isnad and then hadathani urwat urwat ibn zubair anna al-miswar bin makhrama akhbarahu anna عمر بن عوف وهو حليف لبني عامر بن لؤي كان شهد بدرا مع رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم أخبره أن الرسول الله بعث أبا عبيدة ابن الجراح إلى البحرين يأتي بجزيتها. so the, after the mentioning the chain of narration of the hadith the narrator he explains that a person by the name of Amr bin Auf, he witnessed, he was the one who witnessed the battle of Badr, 
one of the major battles with the messenger of Allah and he this person Amr bin Auf he informed him the narrator that the messenger of Allah he sent Abu Ubaidah ibn al-Jarrah and he is one of the ten companions who is promised paradise he sent him to al-Bahrain what today what we know as, as al-Bahrain and he went there to take the jizya and the jizya as you know is like a head tax a tax on each individual taken from the people of the book the Jews and the Christians who have chosen to live under the rule of the Muslims so he sent Abu Ubaidah to go and to bring the jizya right the the the, the payment of the jizya and this is because the messenger of Allah Because the messenger of Allah had entered into a peace treaty with those people who were living in Bahrain. And they had agreed by mutual agreement that we live, we live under your rule. Uh, we're happy to live in peace with you and you know we'll give you this uh, the, the jizya so Abu Ubaidah he went he collected the jizya from the people of Bahrain then he returned and he brought back the wealth and then some people from the Ansar they heard that Abu Ubaidah had come had returned with the jizya and it so happened that when Abu Ubaidah returned he managed to catch the Fajr prayer the morning prayer with the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam and then when Abu Ubaidah was going to go away away after the prayer the people the Ansar or the people they turned and they went to him they went to him and the messenger or, or they came to the uh, they, they came to the messenger of Allah they, they went to Abu Ubaidah so the messenger of began to smile and when, when he saw them and he said أظنكم سمعتم بقدوم أبي Ubaidah وأنه جاء بشيء so he said, I think that you have heard that Abu Ubaidah has come, he's returned, and that he has brought something with him. Right? So remember, these are the people, the companions, they've heard Abu Ubaidah is coming with some wealth from the uh, people of Bahrain, the jizya. And the messenger observed what was happening, and he said to them, I think you've heard that Abu Ubaidah has come. And he's brought something. So they said, Qalu ajal, Ya Rasulullah. They said, Yes, O Messenger of Allah. So he then said, Qala fa'abishiru wa ma So he then said, Glad tidings to you. And you know, good hopes, hope for that which will please you. In other words, he knew that they wanted some wealth. They were in need of some wealth. And they knew that Abu Ubaidah had brought the wealth with him. So the messenger noticed this. And this is what he said to them. Glad tidings. Because they came to ask him for, for some wealth. So he said, glad tidings. 
that you will receive that which will please you. Then he said, and this is the point of evidence, the shahid or the, the main lesson. He said, فَوَاللَّهِ مَلْفَقْرَ أَخْشَى عَلَيْكُمْ He said, by Allah, it is not poverty that I fear most for you. وَلَكِنْ أَخْشَى عَلَيْكُمْ However, I fear upon you or fear for, for you أَن تُبْسَطَ عَلَيْكُمُ الدُّنْيَا كَمَا بُسِطَتْ عَلَى مَنْ كَانَ قَبْلَكُمْ I fear that the world will be, you know, uh, opened up for you and made plentiful for you, just as it was made for those who came before you. فَتَنَافَسُوهَا كَمَا تَنَافَسُوهَا وَتُلْحِيكُمْ كَمَا أَلْحَدْهُمْ and then you will start to compete with each other in regard to the world and its riches and its wealth. You will compete with each other just as those who came before you competed with each other. And it will divert you, meaning from Allah and from, you know, from, from worship and from obedience and from the hereafter, just as it diverted them. Right, so this is the statement of the Messenger of Allah, sallallahu alaihi wasallam. It is related by Al Bukhari, as we said, also related by Imam Muslim in Kitabu Zuhud wal Raqaiq. So the Sheikh, rahimahullah, Sheikh Ubaid, he says, "Hada hadithun azim, kabirul qadar, yahwi fawaid jamma." He says this is a mighty hadith, and it it is a hadith which has a great status. And it contains numerous benefits. So the Shaykh goes on to mention some of these benefits. So the first one, the first benefit that we take from this is the Shaykh says that the people of Bahrain, um, this, this place called Al-Bahrain used to be known as Al-Ahsa. Al-Ahsa, just under the name for, for the place. And it's known today as what we call Al-Bahrain. And it's, as you know, it's the, the Persian Gulf, in the Persian Gulf. And the people who were living in this place were not uh, people of Islam. They were mostly Christians and they were uh, Jews also were present there. So the Messenger of Allah, he made a treaty with them. They agreed that they will uh, live in peace and live under the rule um, and they will pay jizya. And this was the sunnah of the Messenger of Allah, which, which he put in place in relation to such people, right? So such people who are not aggressors, who do not show enmity, who are happy to live uh, under the protection of the Muslims. And this payment that they make is a payment for all able-bodied males of fighting age, right? And they pay this uh, amount, and that amount is to be in the dhimma. Dhimma, meaning under the protection of the Muslims, right? So they are relieved of having to, you know, uh, fight and so on and so forth, and they live under the protection of the Muslims. So this is what these people, the, the Christians and the Jews that were among them, they agreed with this uh, agreement with the Messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Now, this leads the Shaykh to mention the kind of relationships that a Muslim ruler, and in this case, obviously, it, it is the messenger of Allah, who is the ruler at the time, but in general also, that 
the, the types of relationships and the dealings which a Muslim ruler has at his disposal in relation to other, other nations, other people. And so the Sheikh says that those who refuse Islam and from entering into Islam, they are of two types. There are two types of people. He says, first of all, al-awwal qismun yarduna alihim. One of these types of groups are those who are happy to pay the jizya, right? So basically, they say, we are happy to pay you, you know, for each able-bodied male a certain amount as an exemption and to live under your protection and you know, you, you, we want to remain upon our, our religion. So I will remain a Jew. I will remain a Christian. And the Imam will, you know, accept this from them and affirm them upon this. And he will take the jizya from them. Right? And they will live peacefully and they will have the protection, you know, and, um, uh, of, of the Muslims and so on and so forth. So this is one category of people that the Muslim ruler can be interacting with. The second category, وَقِسْمٌ يَأْبُونَ الدُّخُولِ فِي الْإِسْلَامِ وَيَأْبُونَ الْجِزْيَةِ The second group are those people who they reject entering into Islam and they reject also the jizya and therefore the imam, he basically uh, fights against them. He fights against them. Now, now, before we go, uh, go any further, I should also mention, as you know in the hadith of the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu that he used to command uh, his companions that when they used to engage in uh, battles, that they would first call the people to Islam, to offer and present the people Islam. And if they do not accept Islam, then they are offered to live under the protection of the Muslims, remaining upon their religion in return for a jizya, right? So they receive the protection of the Muslims. So then this is offered to them. And the third is that if they refuse this, then the imam can fight, uh, can fight them because this now is basically it's like a hindrance, a hindrance to the proclamation and the preaching of Islam. All right? So there are basically three stages. Da'wah, invitation to Islam, or live under the rule and you live under protection, or if you refuse that, then it is the Imam can fight against them. Now, before we go any further, I want to deal, before we go any further in what the Sheikh said, I want to deal with just one or two issues which is that there are that among the Muslims there are some extremes on one side and the other, and we want to be sure that we, we have a correct and good understanding. So the first thing is that there are some people who say that the only relationship between Muslims and non-Muslims is one of war and battle and fighting and conquest. Right, and that the only relationship is jihad, and everything else is abrogated. Right, so this is what you find. You find it from uh, the uh, 
the, the people of jihad and takfir, the khawarij and people like that. And they are ignorant people who do not understand the Quran or the Sunnah. This is a false understanding, right? None of these previous steps have actually been abrogated, right? Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah in his book Al-Jawabu sahih in the first volume or the second volume, I think it's the first volume, he addresses this issue and he outlines seven or eight arguments to prove that peaceful preaching was never abrogated by the verses of the sword, right? Yes, there are verses of the sword in which Muslims you know, fight. Yes, they are there. But the claim that they abrogated da'wah, this is not true, right? Because the ruler has at his disposal numerous options in, in, in terms of what is his relationship with other nations, right? And the Sheikh mentioned two here, but basically the process is that you can, you can invite other nations to Islam, you can have, uh, you know, you can have diplomatic ties, you can have different things going on, you can offer them to live under Muslim rule, you can fight another nation, you can also have, as the Sheikh says, a third category he says, that he can also have treaties and agreements, mawathiq, uhud, and uh, things like this. He can have treaties, agreements, which, can, which he can enter, in, enter into. And this is even if they do not pay the jizya, and even if it is not an issue of war and battle. Right? The ruler has the... the, the the, the, the disposal to have treaties with nations, right? And this, you know, this, this is what the messenger of Allah himself did. And in fact, many of these relationships existed even after the verses of the sword, right? You know, the verse in Surah uh, uh, Tawbah, uh, in which Allah Azzawajal, he said, قَاتِلُوا الَّذِينَ لَا يُؤْمِنُونَ بِاللَّهِ وَلَا بِالْيَوْمِ الْآخِرِ You know, fight against those who do not believe in Allah and nor believe in uh, the last day and nor make haram what Allah made haram nor do they worship with the true religion from amongst the people of the book right this is the the, the, the verse in which we are the, the, the ruler is ordered to fight but this is not the even after that after this verse was revealed around 8 hijrah there were many many delegations of Christians that were coming to the messenger of Allah and with respect to whom he had agreements, uh, they, they, some of them, many of them agreed to enter into, uh, to, to, to live under the protection of the Muslims. So this is one of the arguments that Ibn Taymiyyah mentions to show that the claim that da'wah was abrogated by the verses of the sword is false. It is not true. Right? This is a refutation of those extremists who say, that the only relationship between Muslims and Muslims is one of conquest, jihad, battle. No, this is false. This is not true. The ruler has a range of these options. And this makes sense. Even, you see, many of the scholars, uh, uh, Imam al-Shanqiti, rahimahullah, uh, in his tafsir uh, in, uh, of the verse in which Allah, he says that Allah does not prevent you or prohibit you 
with respect to those who do not fight you nor expel you from your homes that you that you that you that you uh, be kind to them and that you are just be kind and just with them right it is not prohibited to be kind and just towards non-muslims who are not fighting you for your religion nor are they expelling you from your homes and imam shankiti mentions that this is from uh, the many many important uh, verses whose implementation is necessary in our times because many of the worldly benefits cannot be attained except by way of treaties and relationships with other nations right because a ruler has to bear in mind many different things right if it happens that your you know your your food supply or whatever it might be is coming uh, from a people whom if you enter into war to then your people are going to starve right so is it really from wisdom now to to engage in a war with 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 a nation or nations well no so this is this is why these issues are under the disposal of the ruler for him to decide or for them to decide what is in the best interests of of the nation right so anyhow this is one extreme over here right that the only relationship is war battle conquest no and in any case in islam it is prohibited to fight for conquest and for domination right because allah subhanahu he said in the quran tilka darul akhirah naj'aluha lil ladina la yuriduna uluwan fil ard wala fasada right he said that is the home of the hereafter we make it for those who do not desire or seek highness upon the earth nor corruption right so fighting merely for the sake of conquest this is not permissible this is not this is not what conquest and battle is in islam in islam it is to make the word the kalima of allah the statement la ilaha illallah to be uppermost right it is fi sabilillah it is in the path of allah so anyhow on this side we said this is extremism this is wrong on this side here there are some people who say like you find amongst uh, the modernists liberalists and the munafiqeen the hypocrites and people like that who wish to undermine islam and to undermine you know its 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 laws and they say no 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 the only thing there is in islam is just defensive jihad and only when someone attacks you then you know uh, are you allowed to uh, defend yourself and of and they come with all these kind of you know uh, explanations and and a waffle and and watering down and to to negate the fact that the ruler can take and present uh, islam to nations or to a people and to give them these choices and if they engage in hindrance then he he is able to 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 fight and make conquest right and many of these people who like to kind of step on the back foot and be very apologetic you know because in in the face of the non-muslims and what these people should realize first of all and even many non-muslims realize this and say this as well first of all it's the very nature it's a fact of civilization it's just a fact of humanity that some people dominate other people right the whole history of mankind 
what do you see you see empires coming and going conquering lasting for 100 years 200 years 300 years or maybe shorter maybe longer taking over huge parts of the world conquering entire nations subduing nations then they become weak and then another nation comes and takes over them this is just a fact of of life this this is this is the nature of life this is the, uh, the, the this is what exists in history and this is what nations do nations they want to increase their influence they want to uh, promote their values what they believe to be correct and true values every nation does this every nation does this every, this is just the nature of civilization how can you how can you deny this is just a fundamental fact of just of reality so why should you find it surprising to deny that islam gives the muslim ruler the very same thing the 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 option or the or the choice or the to be able to do the same thing right that's the first point you should keep in mind that this is just a fact of, of reality just look at history the roman empire the greek empire the persian empire the you know the whole of nation is is, is, is the whole of the world and its history is all about nations conquering other nations in fact um in the quran we see that uh, bilqis she said she made a remark she said uh, as occurs in the quran qalat fa inna al muluk idha dakhalu qaryatan ja'alu a'izzata ahliha adhillah right she's talking about kings what are kings like kings are those who they go and they, they conquer they enter into cities and they they turn things around those who are the noble people the honorable people they debase them and they humiliate them and lower them and they put the the lowly people this is just the nature of of, of what kings and rulers what they do they are unjust and they they seek kindness they seek corruption this is just a, a reality that uh, Allah Azawajal has mentioned through a quoting state that the statement of of Bilqis and so this is how it is right all these nations that we mentioned what are they fighting for it is for conquest it is for wealth it is for uh, domination it is for ulu seeking highness it is not for the sake of Allah if that is the case and likewise even today and even in the past centuries you see the British Empire you know uh, taking over most of the world for financial enrichment of themselves at the expense of these nations that they've been conquering right the the set of companies in the in in britain and then rich people have shares in the company then the company funds a ship to go and you know conquer these backward black and brown barbarians because you know they, they're not worthy of 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 the minerals which are you know beneath their feet or whatever so they loot the whole place bring it back this is what nations do so if if this is what nations do how can it not be the case then for islam to spread the truth which is safety and justice and freedom from enslavement in this life and eternal bliss in the hereafter do you understand do you understand the point now that if nations as a fact of life conquer other nations oppressively out of ulu and fasad which is highness and corruption you know and they can bomb nations back into the middle ages to steal their oil or whatever it might be how can it not be the case 
for the truth to be allowed to be spread using what is just warfare. You understand? Like a just war, which is fought honorably, openly announced. You understand? Like in, in, in the just way possible. And so, so the point being here then is not only do we reject these extremists on this side, like ISIS and Daesh and the Ikhwanis and the Taqridis and the Jihadis and who have little understanding and comprehension of the religion, nor are we on this side where we're going to step on the back foot and start making a thousand apologies for... No, because this is, this is the truth, right? And why, 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 why is it okay for you to bomb nations into the Middle Ages to steal their oil just because of financial enrichment? So why should not there exist within the religion which Allah revealed the notion of a just war and to remove people from oppression, right? So if a Muslim ruler was to say, for example, right, we're going to walk into such and such country and the first thing we want to do is we're going to get rid of this central bank. Your central bank's going, usury is outlawed, right? All the uh, uh, interest payments which are the foundation of this oppression and stealing the wealth of the people. I think the people have experienced enough for them to realize that this is the root and source of all of the evils in many of these western nations. So if a Muslim ruler was to say that and say, right, we'll, we'll abolish your central bank and you as Jews can live as Jews, you as Christians can live as Christians, you just pay as one, you know, uh, one single payment for every able-bodied male. After that, whatever you earn is yours, it's tax-free, it's whatever, whatever. I guarantee you, I guarantee you, apart from those who hate Islam, the majority of the people in these Western social democracies would actually, would actually be happy to agree with that. In fact, I even watched a, a clip, uh, in fact, you'll find videos these days of people posting on TikTok or whatever else saying, you know, I left England and I'm in Dubai and I cannot believe that I spent a whole lifetime living in that pit of a place known as whatever city they were living in. You know, it's clean here, it's safe here, it's tax-free. I can't imagine, believe how much I'm earning in this country there, you see people online posting on social media these types of videos, right? So why cannot, so, so what I'm saying, what I'm basically saying, my, my second point then is, so the first point was that this is just a fact of life, right? In fact, there's even, um, I was watching a lecture being delivered about the Khawarij, by this professor or some, you know, in a, in a prestigious university in the US. And this question answer session, and someone's saying, oh, but what about, you know, this, this uh, fighting and conquest and the, the Daesh and ISIS? She's saying, well, look, this is just a fact of life. <laughs> all civilizations, all you ever see in history is conquest and conquest and conquest. Why are you surprised that there might, might be some, that there are some people who want to, you know, this is a fact of life, right? Of civilization, right? So this is the first point. Second point is that if nations out of ulu and fasad can go and kill millions of people, bomb them with plutonium or whatever else to steal the oil, steal the riches, you know, how can it not therefore be 
just and acceptable for you know uh, islam which seeks to liberate people from slavery to other men how can it how can there not be within islam what allows a muslim ruler to equally go and make conquest right to not, not to not to, again like i said is prohibited to make conquest for the sake of conquest a ruler cannot say okay let's go and you can't do that it has to be to make allah's word uppermost so if a ruler was to do that and like i said you know how can how how can you have a problem with that when you are totally fine you know being happy with for example uh, nations like you know uh, iraq or libya or syria or whatever it might be to be destroyed their oil being looted blatantly you're stealing the oil you know how how can you be happy with that but then you find a problem with a muslim ruler having at his disposal a range of things da'wah jizya uh, jihad if he if he wants to treaties of various types how can you have a problem with that so that's the second point and the third point is that obviously the truth if if truth is the truth then the truth has to be has to be spread right because truth isn't is, is for the whole of the world and so that's why in islam there exist these affairs and they are for the rulers it's not for me and you and for the common person to start announcing uh, jihad and fighting this is not for the common people this is only for the rulers to engage in these types of things right so when you see these fools like hizbut tahrir and people like that who are in britain or in france or in germany or in other places and they are acting as if they are the leaders of the muslim ummah passing rulings making declarations right Th these are fools and idiots right who are just uh, fantasists they they they're fantasists right so the the affair is not for them it is for the muslim rulers to engage in these types of affairs and anyhow i wanted to make that clear to you uh, this issue that neither are we on the way of the extremists on the one hand nor are we going to step on the back foot and start making apologies for anything because this is is our religion and this is in in the quran and the sunnah and um, you know and there are many many other arguments that can be brought as well but i just wanted to mention that very uh, briefly uh, that basically the ruler has at his disposal all of these ways and means right he can call other people to islam that can be through diplomatic missions it can be through establishing centers in non-muslim uh, countries it can be um, you know uh, teaching uh, training developing uh, students of knowledge from those countries and then sending them back all of this is part and parcel of da'wah and so long as a nation does not prohibit and hinder that call then as ibn taymiyyah says uh, and as uh, some of the scholars today like sheikh salah sheikh they, sheikh, they say that that, that 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 jihad is only when someone hinders the call from being spread right so if you hinder the call from being spread then the ruler has has, has at his disposal to you know engage in in fighting to remove the obstacles and the barriers from the peaceful uh, preaching and proclamation of islam right just like people go and they want to uh, you know spread democracy across the world you know by as i said bombing nations back into the middle ages 
and your democracy is only basically to establish a central bank and to set up this fake pseudo-democracy, you know, to make the people think that they're the ones voting and they're the ones in power, when the real power is coming from the issuing of the actual currency through the bank, right? As one of them said, that allow me to issue a nation's currency and I care not what the politicians do. Right. So what you see in all these Western nations of, of the democracy and the left and the right and, and the Greens and the liberals, all of this is just a facade. Right. It's like a show and a face to make the people think that they are the ones who are in charge. They're the ones who are voting. They're the ones who put the politicians in. No. And that's what they want to bring into the Muslim nations, where the real power is who controls the issuance of the money. He is the one who controls the entire economy. Then it doesn't matter what the politicians are bickering about, right? So, you know, they, they want to go and they want to bomb nations into compliance to install this false, fake type of democracy. This is what nations do. This is, this is what they do. And, uh, you know, as we said, that uh, a Muslim ruler has at his disposal all of these things and... There are many, many in, 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 in these Western countries who've realized these affairs and realized that all of this democracy is just a sham and a scam. And both parties are actually basically working for the same people who, who, who fund who, who fund and control them. Right? And that's why they're leaving these countries, they're going to Muslim countries, they're going to the Gulf countries, they're going to you know, North Africa, they're going to other countries, and they're seeing that, alhamdulillah, there's, there's security and peace, generally speaking, greater in some countries than other countries. They're able to walk the street safely. They have traditional values. They can raise their family there. They, they, generally, they can keep more of what they earn, Right? And so many, many non-Muslims know and realize, uh, you know, these, these realities. So anyhow, uh, we took a diversion there. But coming back to what the Sheikh was saying, uh, is that after mentioning these categories, the Sheikh then goes on to say that once we understand that the ruler is the one who is in charge of these types of affairs, so very important, it's the ruler of the, of the Muslim nations who decide these things, not not us in this country or any other common person in a Muslim country or it's, it's for the ruler to do that, right? Just to make that clear. The Sheikh says it is not for anyone to start making announcements of battle and war. No, this is for the Muslim ruler. They are the ones who look at these affairs and you know, they, they evaluate and they're the ones who decide these things like, you know, treaties. Shall we enter into this treaty with this nation? Uh, shall we enter into war with this nation? Shall we this? Shall we that? They are the ones, because they're the ones who are in charge. The affair is left to them to basically uh, decide. Anyhow, this is the first benefit then, right? What is the first benefit? That the messenger of Allah, he made treaties with certain groups, of, with certain uh, people. In this case, with Christians and Jews living in Bahrain, they agreed to pay the jizya. And the Muslim ruler has this as one of numerous options in terms of international relations, right? And none of these affairs are abrogated. Rather, all these affairs are in effect, right? But the ruler decides what is the most appropriate and beneficial thing to do for the nation, right? Uh, in terms of having relationships with, with, with other nations. Anyhow, that's the first benefit we take from the hadith. The second benefit 
that the Sheikh mentions is he says that it is permissible for those people who are in need within the Muslim nation from the fuqara and the masakin, from the poor, the needy, that they can request from the treasury, from the Baytul Mal, the treasury of that nation, they can ask the Muslim ruler to be given something from the treasury. And the Muslim ruler, the current Muslim ruler, he can give them what is in his ability. What is in his ability. And Allah has not burdened the ruler with more than what he can do. If he gives to them, then they can accept. And if he does not give to them, then they should not become angry. They should not become angry. And so th this is something very, very important to understand now, right? I want you to understand the difference between how it works in a, in a Muslim nation according to how Allah and his messenger have legislated and how it works in other nations in which um, corruption, civil strife, revolutions, how they find ground in that society which Islam aims to prevent, to stop harm in the society, right? So this is, this is very, a very crucial point to understand. What the Sheikh is saying is that yes, it is permissible if Muslims are living in poverty, say there's a certain town or a certain place, it's, it's you know, um, uh, there's no jobs, there's, there's difficulty, whatever. Yes, Muslims can go to the rule and say, you know, is there anything in the Baytul Mal? Is there anything in the treasury you can give to us uh, to, uh, e for economic stimulus, for repairing the roads, for building some houses, for taking these people off the street? Yes, you can do that and you can go to the ruler. And the ruler, he can give to them based upon what is within his ability, right? Allah has not burdened the ruler with more than what he can bear in the same way that Allah has not burdened each one of us with what we can bear, right? So, if the ruler gives, alhamdulillah, they can accept. If he does not give, either because he's unable to, or because he sees that the money is better spent elsewhere for a greater benefit to the nation, or even if the ruler is unjust, He's unjust now, right? In all of these three situations, you are not to become angry and you are to be patient, right? This is how the Sharia and the Messenger of Allah, how he gave us guidance as to how to deal with and treat the rulers of the Muslims in each of these situations, right? And um, the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu he in a hadith, he rebuked and criticized the person who pledges allegiance to the ruler of the Muslims only for the sake of material benefit, right? There are some people, what they see is, okay, if I pledge allegiance to this ruler or if I, you know, it's, I, I'm going to get some material benefit, right? 
those types of people who are motivated like this, the messenger of Allah, he rebuked them and criticized them and gave a threat with respect to them. He said that uh, there are some people who give allegiance to the Muslim ruler for the sake of the world. If the ruler gives them something of material benefit, they're happy. And if he does not give them something, they become angry. Right? And the messenger included this type of person among those about him, um, whom he said, there are three whom Allah will not speak on the day of judgment, nor will he look at them on the day of judgment, nor will he purify them, and they will have a painful punishment. And one of those categories is the one, basically, who, who lives under a ruler, gives him the Pledge of Allegiance, and his only reason to do so is because he's expecting some financial gain or benefit from the ruler. Do you understand? Right? The importance behind this is I want you to know the difference between how a Muslim lives in a Muslim nation, understanding these affairs, and between what you find in socialist, communist nations. Right? Where the people somehow have an expectation from the government that the government has to put food on their table. That the government has to feed them and clothe them. Right? This is the mind, like the socialist, communist way of thinking that somehow I, I have some right on the government that food is on my, on my plate. No. This is socialism and communism. No one is obligated to put anything on your table apart from yourself. It's for you to get up and work and make the effort and strive to learn skills to get out there and to bring a risk onto your table. Yes, the ruler, uh, as the sheikh in fact goes on, he will go on to explain uh, shortly, inshallah, uh, that the ruler has many, many other things to do in, 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 in the nation. Yes, there is Baytul Mal. Yes, there is the treasury. Um, that depends upon the people giving zakah. That in turn, turn depends upon the people uh, having wealth. They may, they may not have wealth. And at different times, there's riches, there's poverty. You know, Allah alternates these things. So no one is obligated to put food on your table. You are the one who has to go and make the effort and put food on the table for yourself, for your family, right? So what I'm saying here is I want you to understand the difference between what we are learning here about you know, what, how, how does a Muslim think and how is a Muslim motivated because there are some people and this idea and this thought appeared in the time of the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam because the Shaykh was on to mention that man Dhul Khuwaisira At-Tamimi he is the father the ideological father of the Khawarij today like ISIS, Daesh, you know, people like them. This is, this is something that happened in the time of the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu There was some booty, some war booty from the Battle of Hunayn. The Messenger of Allah Sallallahu he distributed this uh, gold or whatever it was to certain tribes or to certain individuals, right? And uh, some of these people, they were not Muslims, they were hypocrites, 
underground amongst the Muslims in the time of the Messenger of Allah, Dhul Khuwaisira and the people with him. So when they, when they never received any of this gold or this, or this booty, they came and they said to the Messenger very audaciously, Fear Allah, O Muhammad. Ittaqillah, ya Muhammad. And they said, By Allah, this is a division by which Allah's face is not sought. Meaning, you are not pleasing Allah with this division. This is unjust. This is an unjust division. Right? And the Messenger of Islam, he said, Woe be to you. Woe be to you. Am I not the most worthy of the people of the earth who should be fearing Allah? How can you say to me, fear Allah? Am I not the most worthy of the people of the earth who should be fearing Allah? Look at this audacious, brave, bold, what appears to be brave, bold attack upon the most fearful of the creation of Allah's, of, 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 from the servants of Allah. Be just, O Messenger of Allah. So these people became unhappy because they did not receive anything from the distribution of the booties. And even some of the other Sahaba, they also felt unhappy because they felt they didn't, you know, why didn't we receive when the messenger is given? Because the people whom the messenger gave these, uh, this, this wealth to, they were from the nobles and the elites of the Arabs. So you can imagine, right? You've been a Muslim for, you know, uh, among the Ansar for like 10, you know, well not 10, but maybe let's say 7, 8, 9 years. You've gone through poverty, you've gone through hardships, you've gone through difficulties. Then some of these powerful, wealthy pagans of the Arabs from the nobles, they've entered into Islam and the messenger is giving to them. Do they even need the money? Right? So even some of the Ansar thought, hang on, this, you know... So um, they, they raised this issue to the Messenger of Allah Sallam, and uh, um, the Messenger said, "Innama atallafahum, innama atallafahum." So the Messenger explained to them what the wisdom is. What's the reason? He's saying, "Look, I want to cement and incline their hearts upon Islam, because because the Ansar, even though you're living in poverty, you have strong iman." You can live through poverty. You can live through hardship. Your iman is strong. But these people, they are, you know, if we cement and strengthen their hearts in Islam, then in turn, whatever they do by their wealth and by their influence will be for the benefit of the Muslims as a whole. And the messenger did this because of revelation from Allah. Right? This division is, as the Sheikh says, um, the, the, because the Ansar then understood the messenger is doing this because this is from Allah that he's commanded to give to them as opposed to them. Do you understand? So um, the point being here is that this whole issue where somehow you have an expectation from the state that you need to put food on my plate and you need... No. In Islam, you make tawakkul upon Allah you learn skills, you go out, even if it means collecting twigs and firewood to sell in the market, then so, be it so. Right? You are the one obligated to provide for your family. And if, you know, the ruler, obviously, he can 
distribute charities, can distribute zakah or whatever, and he can only do what is within his capacity, right? But there's no expectation, right? Unlike what you have, and that's what you see in these countries, where you have in socialist, in, in socialist countries, where the people become weakened, let's say the men become emasculated, right? They don't understand what is hard work, they don't understand, they think, oh, well, the state has to provide for me. Social security and this and this is, in fact, this is how socialism is something that destroys the fabric of a society, right? Uh, in fact, I read just the other day the, in the fatawa of Sheikh Muhammad bin Ibrahim Al Sheikh, right? He's from the the he's the uh, the father of the Mufti, uh, the current Mufti, and he's a great alim, Sheikh Muhammad bin Ibrahim Al Sheikh. And he, in his, in his fatawa, there's a question that was sent to him from Pakistan. And this question, this questioner, he said, in Pakistan, we have all of the wealthy landowners. They own all the wealth, own all the property. And we have people living in poverty and, you know, uh, whatever, whatever. And we fear that the masses of the poor people might be affected by the ideology of Bolshevism. Bolshevism meaning communism, right? And we fear that they might be, you know, they, uh, because they, they don't have any wealth and see all the rich people, we fear that they might en enter into Bolshevism. And the Sheikh answered saying that, um, because what they were implying was can we take and snatch can we take the wealth and the land and the property of the wealthy and give it to and distribute it to the poor? And the Sheikh said, no, this is, this is unlawful. And this claim or this idea of them falling into Bolshevism, this is, this is false and this is futile. And you are not, basically you are not allowed to confiscate the wealth and the pro private property of, of people who've earned, you know, who, who, who own it. Uh, this is this is this this is not allowed. This is opposed to Islam, right? And even Sheikh Ibn Thaymin, rahimahullah taala, in his late twenties, going back literally, uh, that would be about the 1950s, let's say, he wrote a refutation of socialism, mentioning about 60 or 70 proofs from the Quran and the Sunnah. To refute this idea of socialism, as if somehow, as if somehow, um, because because with socialism, what happens? Socialism is a, an idea or a doctrine that the wealthy elite use in order to keep the grip of power and to stop their power from being challenged. And the way they do it is, they say uh, that. Um, the poor and the needy we will take the wealth from the wealthy and then distribute it equally amongst the, the, the poor people right what the wealthy are trying to do is to stop the middle classes the wealthy people from becoming even more wealthier such that they become a threat to their power Right, so they keep this group in check by way of the poor. Right, they take 
confiscate the wealth of these people and give it to those people. And then they pit these two against each other, right? So, you, you know, uh, the poor and the whatever, and then the, the, this is what they do, right? This is socialism. And what socialism does, it creates masses of people, of men who think, you know what? The state has to provide for me. The government has to put food on my table. So then they don't need to work. They don't need to uh, strive. They don't need to, you know, become... Uh, uh, you know, people who basically uh, think about business and, and uh, you know, all these kind of things, you know, this is, this is what they do. And to snatch and take the wealth of, of, from people outside of zakah and sadaqah, then this is, this is unlawful, right? But this is socialism. This is socialism. And socialism is something that destroys um, the fabric of society over time, right? So, again, I want you to think about these things and understand th th there's so many things that will become clear to you and wisdoms that will become clear to you when you look at how Islam and the Sunnah and the Sharia how it has come with these types of affairs um, because it, it basically it's like a protection of the whole society from effects and influences that you can't see with your eye because they happen over decades and decades and decades until you see the effects of those things. Do you understand, right? So what I'm saying to you now is look at all these Western nations now which have been running on socialism for decades and decades. They've been looted. They're on the brink of ruin and destruction. The people are living in absolute poverty. They're being taxed to, you know, to death literally. Right, these are the effects of socialism, right? Of, of implementing these ideologies in the society. This is why these things are not allowed to take root in a Muslim nation. Because what Islam has come with, what the messenger has come with, prevents these types of ideologies from ever taking root. Do you understand? That's a, I want you to make the link between all of these things. So first of all, the ruler is not under any obligation to put food on your table. You are. Right? Secondly, the ruler does what is in his capacity to do. Right? He may give to you if there's something there. He may not give to you even if there is something there because there's something else more important that he needs to do. Right? Or he may not give to you because he's being unjust. In all of these situations, we cannot rebel we cannot make revolutions. We cannot, you know, you know. And then you will find people coming along thinking, oh, well, you know, like you have the Ikhwanis, like you find in the books of Sayyid Qutb and people like that calling for a type of communism, a type of socialism, and speaking with the same ideas. What does that lead to? It leads to revolution and even greater turmoil, destruction, you know, uh, revolutions. And then the non-Muslims come along and they take advantage of that situation. Just look at, let, let me stay on this point for a bit longer. There are people nowadays, when we explain these realities from the Sharia and from Al-Qadr, right? When we explain these things, they will come to us and say, you are the bootlickers of the rulers. You are the, you are the bootlick, bootlickers, you are the madkhali bootlickers. These are misguided, uh, intellectually crippled, mentally deranged people 
who do not understand anything of the wisdoms of the Sharia. But they think they are so intellectually sophisticated and so smart that they can denigrate the people of the Sunnah by saying you are madhuli bootlickers. I want to give you just a few examples. Let's take three nations in the modern era. You have Iraq, you have Syria, and you have Libya. The rulers of each of these three nations were disbelievers. The Muslim scholars declared them to be disbelievers. You have Saddam Hussein, who is a Ba'athi. A Ba'athi is like a type of socialism, communism, mixed in with Arab nationalism, right? You have Assad, Bashar al-Assad, and his father before him. These are, these are the worst. They, they are Nusayri, Alawi, Nusayri, Kufar, Mushrikeen. They are Batanis, right? They, they, they are, they are not, they're not Muslims. Ruling Syria. And then you have Libya, uh, not, uh, Libya, Gaddafi, who is a socialist, again. And the Muslim scholars made takfir of him many, many, many uh, decades ago. Now, if we were to say, and we did say, the people of the Sunnah, do not rebel against the ruler, not because we consider him to be a Muslim ruler or a tyrannical Muslim. No, we know he's a disbeliever. But do not rebel, do not revolt, because, because if you do so, the harms that are going to come to you and your society is going to be multiple times more than the oppression that you are experiencing now. Don't do it. Don't do it. Right? What do we see what happened? We see that first of all, non-Muslim agencies, intelligence agencies, they start uh, funding opposition groups and parties to stoke up the opposition, right? Then they create this kind of civil strife and then they use that as an excuse Right, to then eventually to make a revolution or to a war, whatever it might be, right? These types of people become playthings in the hands of external foreign vultures to help them fulfill their agendas, right? But if we were to say, and we, we did say, have patience under Bashar al-Assad, not because we believe he's a sinful Muslim ruler. No, we know he's a disbeliever. Right? But the harms that are going to come to you are going to be multiple time, more times than whatever hardship you have now. Same with Libya. Right? Same with Iraq. Right? If we were to say that, and we did say that, they would say, oh, you are, you are defending these, you know, uh, disbelieving tyrants. Well, no, we're not. You know, we, we don't have a simplistic child's level understanding of the situation like what you do. Do you understand? Right. So in the same way, we say, this, we say the same thing about actual Muslim rulers. Right. And, and you know, uh, I mean, there is some more detail to this because the issue comes down to, you know, are you allowed to criticize them openly or does it have to be in private? It's the nature of how do you advise a Muslim ruler? Right, but in any case, the point, the point that I'm making here is that there are people who, when we speak with these affairs of the Sharia and the wisdoms behind the Sharia, 
and how the Sharia is minimizing the potential evil that can happen in a society to protect it and the, the nation as a whole from you know, these types of calamities and hardships that we see in Iraq and Syria and, and you know, these other places. Um, many of these people will, will attack us and say, well, you, you are bootlickers, you are defending the race. No, it's not. It's not because of that reason. It's because of the wisdoms that the Sharia has actually, has actually come with, right? So, now, this is what happened in the time of the Messenger of Allah, right? He gave the wealth to rich, wealthy elites amongst the kuffar who only just entered into Islam. And some of the companions didn't understand it, so they were upset. But when he explained to them, they understood. Another group of people, what did they start saying? This is social injustice. This is the claim of every seeker of tribulation, right? We want social justice. We want equal distribution of wealth. We deserve the wealth. This mentality is a dangerous mentality. It does not exist anywhere, like you said. Like, like, like we said, look at the hadith. That the Messiah rebuked the one and made all these threats against the one whose allegiance to a ruler is only because he's expecting some wealth. This type of mentality is the type of mentality that leads to the types of problems that you see in these socialist communist countries. Right? And it is for that reason that we are in, in foresight that we apply what the sunnah has come with as it relates to the rulers, as it relates to, you know, um, if, if, you, if you suffer hardship under the rulers, this is what we are looking at because we're trying to prevent the evils that are going to come further down the line. So all of the things that the Messenger of Allah, what he brought in relation to the rulers on the one hand and in relation to the khawarij on the other hand, it is opposed, it is opposite to what any man would think. Do you understand? This is what Ibn Taymiyyah mentions. That he says that when you look in the Sharia, the Sharia has come with having patience towards the tyranny of the rulers. Yet at the same time, it, is, it has come with the most severe and harsh statements against the Khawarij. Right? This is not something that a man's reason would come up with. If you, as men, we would think, you know what? If the ruler is tyrannical, let's just rebel, uh, rebel, revolt, get rid of him, uh, you know, whatever, mobilize against him because we want to establish justice. And that's what you see amongst the non-Muslim nations. Conversely, the people of Bid'ah and Dalala, you know, we should accommodate them and we should, you know, uh, unite with them and we should build our... No, the Islam came with a total opposite. It came with a total opposite. It came with something that the intellect of men would oppose. Right? And that's why really these people who attack us and they make all these slanderous accusations against the scholars of the sunnah and say that you are scholars for dollars and you are scholars of the, of the palaces and you are... All of this is kadib, it's not. Right? It's because the sharia has come with wisdoms to look after the interests of the people, short term and long term. 
and it has come with the principle of bearing the lesser evil toward off the greater evil right it has come with all these affairs to protect a muslim nation and society from the types of things that happen in the lands of disbelief on the basis of ideologies like socialism and bolshevism and communism where millions are slaughtered right like in stalin's russia and mao's china and other cambodia and other places where they starve them to death and all all under these false ideologies of socialism and communism you know the equal distribution of wealth you know the these slogans which are which are false so all of these things are basically connected right and we have to be very clear about these things uh, these these assumptions that we have somehow that somehow like like what they have in socialist societies that somehow you know uh, the government is 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 uh, obligated to put food on my plate well no it's not no it's not right so we must not allow our thinking to be poisoned by these by these kind of uh, false ways of thinking and these texts are very very important and they they make that very very clear so in fact the very next point the shaykh goes on to mention he says ومن هنا تعلمون بارك الله فيكم ان اهل الثورات الذين تسمعون بهم ما بين ما بين الفين وفينا he says that you know you will sometimes hear every now and then about these people of revolution you know these people uh, they are not making a revolution for the sake of the sharia of allah for the sake of judging by the book of allah and the sunnah rather what is motivating them in their revolution is because they want the world and they want positions of authority they want a position they want a job they want wealth right they want to be the ones in charge they want to be uh, this is what's motivating them for revolutions and uh, if if they were to truly judge by the sharia of allah and judge by the sunnah of muhammad sallallahu then you know they 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 would have uh, traveled the earth to seek rizq from allah this is what you do you don't say well the government didn't put food on my plate so i'm going to now gather people together and revolt against no you go learn some skills learn a profession do something the earth is is allah's earth is spacious and wide go and earn an honorable living why are you acting as if you know like 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 a socialist or a communist as if uh, you know someone is obligated no it's not it's not true so see see the mentality the mentality is completely and totally wrong the ways and means of earning a plenty in allah's creation you know go go and seek that and the sheikh goes on to mention in fact the, the very same point uh, he says to give you an example those people who opposed in syria the revolution in syria he says what what has their revolution brought about right um they they revolted against bashar who is a mal'oon ibn al-mal'oon bashar is a cursed person because he's a nusairi alawi kafir son of a cursed one because his father was the same nusairi alawi kafir and why did they revolt against what, what was it for is it was it because of the sharia of allah 
because of tawheed because of what was it for right was what was your opposition to him was it like basically on the basis of a jihad of a muslim between a muslim and a kafir or was it because, was it because of aqidah was it because he's a nusayri alawi or was it because something else the world what what was the reason and we know what the reason was the reason was because people were instigated from outside to destabilize that country and to weaken it and the sheikh says well an unzuru suriya farraj allahu anha wa nafasa qurbataha look at syria now may allah you know relieve it and remove it you know the hardship upon the people there what do you find there people killed people taken captive until even the sheikh says that people were living in such hunger and poverty that they had to go and eat cats they had to eat cats kittens cats for food you know and uh, syria used to be from the best of the lands populated by by muslims it was generally peaceful it was generally safe there there was um lots of you know risk lots of produce would grow there lots of lots of things would grow there as as you find in many muslim countries alhamdulillah and the people would benefit from that people would visit that place um to to you know to 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 benefit benefit from the cheap uh, prices and and the food and so on and so forth and the the residents and everything and now look at it have you ever seen those pictures of where you see the entire landscape bombed with with ruins have you ever seen those pictures of of syria and iraq and libya why how did all that happen why did all that happen right it's because people have abandoned the sunnah and they became deceived by by the khawarij and people like them who are infiltrated by the western intelligence agencies to to make revolutions and to destabilize the countries right and when we when we try to say no no don't go in that direction because the outcome is going to be far worse than what you are living under right now and even what you are living under right now the real reason is because of your sins and disobedience and innovations and misguidance and that's why allah has put such rulers over you as a reward for your own sins and if you repent and change Allah will remove these rulers and give you better rulers. If the people had patience in Iraq for example, Saddam would have been gone. If the people had patience in Libya for example, Gaddafi would have been gone. Right? 5 10 years, you know, you lived 50 years, what's another 5 10 years? Have sabr, have patience. Right? And so when we speak with these things all of a sudden now, we are bootlickers. We are bootlickers of the of the rulers. This is from the greatest slander the greatest of lies coming from 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 these people we do not condone any evil coming from any ruler we detest it and hate it for the sake of allah but we have been given a certain way and a methodology as to how to behave in these kind of situations and scenarios right and we we value the sunnah and we stick to the sunnah because in it is is khair and so as the sheikh says you know he says look at syria now destroyed and we would say then and we would say right now have patience even though he's a kafir have patience have sabr don't openly revile look even if i said for example 
do not openly attack and revile, for example, let's say Gaddafi or Assad, right? Does that now make me a bootlicker? Because think about it rationally. What's going to happen now, right? If, if, if you now get people to come out in the media, in the press, or people on the street to go and say, Bashar is evil and Gaddafi is evil and whatever, even though you know, he's dead. What's he going to do? He's going to repress the people even more. Right? There'll be more censorship. There'll be more people rounded or put into prison. What's, where's the aql in, in, in any of this? In you wanting to basically make an open rejection in public against the rule. When you know that the effect this is going to have is that he's going to use the apparatus of the state which he has control over to come and repress you even more. Not just you, but all innocent people that you're going to drag in because of your stupidity and foolishness. Right? Does that mean now that we're bootlickers just because we're trying to prevent this type of repression from increasing from this, from this kafir in this case, or even a Muslim? Because even a Muslim ruler who might, you know, because this, if you're in power, you don't want your power to be threatened, right? So if people now come and openly start criticizing and reviling and taking this as a methodology, what do you think the ruler is going to do? He's going to use the apparatus of the state to protect it. This is natural. You would do that. Even these people would do that. The very people who are saying, Madhkali because you would be doing that as well if you were in that position to hold on to your power and use the apparatus of the state to stop any uh, opposing speech. So, what, so what's, what's the benefit in this then? When you're calling people to... This is, this is how revolutions start. Right? This is how it starts. This is how one drop becomes an ocean. And this is how revolutions appear. Start small, trickle, and then it grows and grows. And then next, th next thing you know, what do you have? You have what you have in Syria, Iraq, Libya, and other places. Right? So th these are slanders and lies from these people. We do not condone any evil coming from any Muslim, any opposition to the Quran and the Sunnah. We are obligated to enjoin the good and prohibit the evil. We, we warn against the evil. But it doesn't mean now we have to go and start reviling the ruler and cursing the ruler. And, you know, because that, what's the benefit in that? He's going to increase his repression. How does it even make sense to do that? Do you understand? So, anyhow, the, these are uh, some very important... Uh, anyhow, this is the second benefit. We actually have four benefits. I only want to get through two. Uh, so the second benefit is what? There's a lot in benefit number two. Right? There's a lot of things that Sheikh Obeid has alluded to in benefit number two. Uh, you know, that the ruler does what's in his capacity. Uh, if he doesn't, for whatever reason, uh, you shouldn't be unhappy. You know, get up, uh, earn a living, learn a skill. The Allah's earth is spacious. No one's obligated to put food on your table apart from yourself. Don't become unhappy. Don't be like these people like Dhul Khuwaisira and people who you know, believe in equal distribution of wealth and you know, social justice. And this is the foundation of all corrupt, evil, revolutionary movements throughout history. It's the basis of destruction of the society as a whole. Islam does not allow this way of thinking to 
be established in the minds of the people by way of these things that you find in, in the sunnah. Right? Because of the tremendous harms that, 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 that follow on from these types of things. There are many things in the second benefit mentioned by Shaykh Ubaid, rahimahullah ta'ala. The third benefit Shaykh mentions is that when the Imam, uh, when, when the Imam, when people come to him to ask for something, then he should give them glad tidings. If he's got the ability to give, he should say glad tidings, because this is what the messenger did when those people came and they wanted something from Abu Ubaidah because he knew he brought the jizya and the ruler has something to give, he should make the people happy, right? The ruler should instill happiness into the people, glad tidings to you, be happy, we, you know. This is for the ruler to do that. And he should remove what is in their hearts of, you know, uh, need and want, you know, with, with these good words. And he should give what he's able to give. Now, it is not obligatory for the imam to now basically give to every single person in the society and to spend upon everybody because this comes back down to ability comes back down to your ability all right and the ruler is no different like like if if you as an for example you as a person in your family and relatives there's no obligation upon you to give to all of your poor relatives you give to whom you are able to give and allah has not put a burden upon you to list or every single relative of yours living here, here, there, whatever, and I must give to it. No. You give what's in your ability. And the ruler is no different. He gives what is in his ability based upon what's in the treasury, based upon any other things that might be happening in, in the nation. There could be things going on, projects, there could be uh, natural disasters, there could be other things, for example, a war. There could be many things that prevent the ruler from basically giving to everybody. And as the Sheikh goes on to say, in the, modern, in the modern era, a ruler, you know, not only does he have to maybe spend and give food to certain people, but he has many other obligations, right? Issues to do, social issues, to do with education, to do with health. Uh, it could be spending money on military spending for protection of the borders and to keeping an army because of threats. All these things, the ruler has to take care of all these things. So he basically can't, you know... Uh, it can't spend upon everybody. So once we understand this, the Sheikh then goes on to mention about the Khawarij of this time, Daesh, ISIS, and you know they then put an, another. And remember, these are being supported and aided and funded by other agencies from outside, from from intelligence agencies, in order to destabilize the Muslim nations. Right. So either. Either they are funding the Khawarij or they are funding the Rafida, the Rafida, the Shia and the Khawarij, right? These are used to destabilize especially Sunni Muslim countries, right? So what these people do, they just preoccupy the Muslim government and divert the attention of the Muslim government from important issues, wasting more wealth on having to you know, address these groups and their extremism and their terrorism and whatever it might be. And, uh, you know, the Sheikh says, uh, Sheikh goes on to say, he goes on to mention a point how uh, you see that 
that these types of groups, they are used specifically to target certain countries, particularly the, the Gulf countries, because of their riches, because of their wealth, to basically destabilize these countries, to, 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 to make them lose their power, and to splinter these countries into different groups. So this is, this is clearly, we know that this is what is intended, you know, by, uh, by you know, through the, the funding and the supporting uh, of these groups. And Sheikh goes on to mention generally, he makes a general point, I'll, I'll mention it very quickly, is that in general you find that wherever there is Tawheed and the Sunnah, that country is generally safer and wealthier or there's, you know, there's, there's provision and there's safety and security. And whenever you have Shirk, you have worship of the graves, you, have, you find there's more corruption and there's more evil, there's more corruption. And we know this, practically speaking, we know this to be true from, from experience. If you go to the countries where there are no graves being worshipped, there's no grave worship, there's no people going to graves, asking for help, asking for rescue, asking for their illness to be cured, asking for uh, children because they can't have children, like you see in many of the, 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 you know, you see it in Pakistan, you see it in India, you see it in all these far eastern countries who are plagued with, with Sufism and grave worship. You find that in these countries, generally speaking, there's a lot more poverty, there's a lot more corruption amongst the political circles, there's lots of embezzlement, the, you don't feel safe when you walk out in the streets, you might get robbed. Generally you feel this more so, where you have shirk in a nation. And where you have Tawheed, where you have, there's no graves, there's people worshipping Allah, calling upon Allah, and uh, there's generally people understand what is Tawheed, you see that you can walk around freely, you can walk safely, you know, um, your car won't be stolen, you can leave it, you can go to the mosque, leave the car on, you know, your Bentley, your Mercedes, Mercedes, whatever it might be, you can go in, the, you can be in the mosque for 15, 20 minutes, you come back out, and the car's still there, it's still, it's still there with the AC on, a Ferrari, a Paul, whatever it might be, and no one's going to steal the car, right? And so, Tawheed brings with it rizq and aman, right? Provision and safety. And shirk and ingratitude brings with it the opposite. It is khawf and ju'r. Khawf and ju'r. This principle is mentioned in many verses of the Quran. One of them is in Surah Quraysh. فَلْيَعْبُدُوا رَبَّ هَذَا الْبَيْتِ الَّذِي أَتْعَمَهُمْ مِنْ جُوعِ وَآمَنَهُمْ مِنْ خَوْفِ Right? Let them worship the Lord of this house. Let them worship the Lord of this house. This is Tawheed. Worship the Lord of this house. The one who fed them to, to protect them from hunger and who gave them security and safety from fear. So if you worship Allah alone and the people at large worship Allah alone, you will have provision in that land and you will be, you will be safe. And if you worship other than Allah and you are ungrateful, then you will have lack of provision, there will be poverty, less jobs, 
and there will be there will not be any safety you will not feel safe leaving your home and and traveling when you travel you might get robbed you might get held up you might be killed you might be whatever it might be this is this is a rule in the quran and so the sheikh is generally just mentioning here in this point that basically we see that alhamdulillah this country uh, is speaking about uh, the gulf countries and, and uh, saudi arabia and we're not saying that these countries are perfect and you know uh, there are no uh, deficiencies and flaws and shortcomings and you know we're not, we're not saying that but in general you can observe this rule that whenever there is tawheed and sunnah overall in general there is greater security there's greater happiness uh, more safety and provision is generally abundant and poverty is not so so much conversely when you when you when you see you know when there's shirk grave worship right you will see corruption poverty uh, you fear for your life you don't feel safe this is like a general rule in allah's creation the fourth benefit that the sheikh mentions what time is uh, maghrib 920. Huh? 9:20 the fourth benefit that the sheikh mentions is and this also is a very important benefit which is which is the actual last part of the hadith he said fa wallahi mal faqra akhsha alaykum the messenger said, by Allah, it is not poverty that I fear for you the most. And the Sheikh says, he makes an observation, he says, look, if you, the Sheikh says, if you travel the countries and you travel up and down and you see how many other people who actually come to the masjid, to, to, to the lessons, who are basically come to the durus and who come for general like worship the Jum'ah or whatever. Generally you find that for example here there are you know, maybe 100 or so, 150, however many people, right? He's saying that not everybody is turned towards the religion. The people who generally turn towards the religion are very, very few. You can count them on hands. Showing that the majority of the people, of the Muslims in general, that they are more preoccupied with the world rather than the hereafter. And this is what the Messenger of Allah, he feared most for his ummah. By Allah, it is not poverty which I fear for you the most. What did he say? It is, I fear that the world will be opened and expanded for you. You will then compete with each other for it. And then this will divert you from Allah, from the hereafter, from his obedience. This is what the messenger feed most for his ummah, more so than poverty. Because poverty, poverty, if you're in poverty, then poverty motivates you. It pushes you to get up, to do something, to work, to strive, to put in effort, to learn something, to develop a skill. You are, you are by necessity of the situation, you are forced to do something. This is the nature of poverty. Poverty is good. Poverty is good for children. Poverty is good for you to learn self-reliance, to learn skills. But what happens with the wealthy people, the wealthy people is they sit back and they enjoy good food and they become soft, right? And they develop, they, they, they lose all of the hard and rugged skills that the people of poverty have which is why 
when a tribulation comes about, you will see that the, those who are wiped out very quickly and easily are the elite or the wealthy who live in luxury, right? Who enjoying, you know, with, with their wealth, just consuming their wealth. They're the ones who are very easily wiped out because they are unable to, to survive hard and difficult times, right? So, so as, as, as the Sheikh goes on to say, that if you look at how many people are actually turning towards the religion, they are very, very few. And you see that by the fact how many people come to learn their religion, uh, to you know, attend gatherings, the masajid, it's very, very few. Most of the people are preoccupied in their, in their businesses, their, you know, whatever it might be. And uh, this is what the messenger feared most for his ummah. And he said, I fear that the world is expanded for you. You, began, you begin to compete with each other and then it diverts you away from, um, you know, from, from the path. Now, at the end of this, the sheikh mentions a beautiful hadith which we want to finish with. And it is a mighty, tremendous hadith. And the sheikh goes on to say, Basically, people are divided into four categories when it comes to wealth and knowledge. Right? This is the hadith of the Messenger of Allah, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. The Shaykh summarizes it. He says that when it comes to what people have been given of the worldly merchandise, which is wealth, money, you know, he says they are, they are of two types. In fact, there are four types, but he mentions the first two. The first type of person is the one who has been given wealth. He spends it upon his family and he spends it upon various types of goodness. And his wealth is consumed, his wealth perishes in all of these good causes. And these people are not harmed by the world, right? Because they, they, they have wealth and because they also have knowledge, they have ilm, that knowledge causes them to spend the wealth in what is goodness and what is of benefit, benefit to the people and to them in the hereafter. So therefore they are not harmed in any way by the wealth that they possess nor in the way that they that they uh, spend of that wealth and cause that wealth to perish. That's the first category. Ilm wal mal. He has ilm and has mal. Or he has mal and he has ilm. The second group is the one who... Um, or the second group are those people whose hearts are attached to the world... And they are preoccupied with the world away from the hereafter. They don't know what is good. They don't know what is evil. They don't reject the evil. The only thing they're motivated by is wealth. Money. How can I make more money? Where can I find money? Right? So their desire leads them to wherever they're going to find wealth and money and property and riches. This is what motivates them. Right? It's not what, it's not what is halal, haram, good, evil. Right? They are motivated by wealth. And then the Shaykh mentions uh, the hadith of the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. This is the hadith. This is the amazing hadith. He said in this hadith, إِنَّمَا الدُّنْيَا 
Indeed, the world is for four types of people. He says, Abdin ilman wamalan so the first of those four is a servant whom Allah has given knowledge and he has given wealth. He spends from this wealth during the night and during the day. He knows Allah's right with respect to this wealth over him and he fears his Lord in relation to this wealth. This is the best of the levels, right? This is the first person. Has knowledge, has wealth. He spends it for benefit night and day. And he fears Allah with respect to it. This is the first person. The second person is one to whom Allah has given knowledge, ilm. But he did not give him wealth. But he is truthful in his intention. He says, He says, If only I had the wealth of so-and-so person, meaning the first person, the first type of person. If I had the same wealth that he had, then I would do the same thing that he does. I would do the same thing that he does. Or he said, That if I had the wealth, I would have done the same deeds as that person. He says that the reward of these two is the same. Inshallah, we'll only have a few more minutes. We'll finish this hadith, inshallah ta'ala. So the messenger said, the reward for these two people is the same, Right? The one who doesn't have the wealth, but he's got the knowledge. And he sees, look at that man, he's spending in charity, building a mosque, planting trees, printing books, spreading tawheed, spreading the sunnah. If only I had that wealth, what he has, <clears throat> I would do exactly the same thing that he's doing. And he's truthful, in his, he's truthful when he says that. He genuinely would do that. This person, that person, they are of equal reward. Their reward is the same. Even though this person hasn't, you know, done what the other person has done. So the Sheikh says, these first two people mentioned in the Hadith, who is the first one? The first one is Ghaniyun Shakir. Ghaniyun Shakir. He is a grateful, wealthy person. A wealthy person who is grateful. Ghaniyun Shakir. Who is the second one? The second one is Faqirun Sabir. Faqirun Sabir. The second one is a poor person who is patient. He has knowledge but no wealth. But he is patient. And if he had the wealth, he would use it exactly like the first person in goodness. He wouldn't squander it. He wouldn't do anything haram with it. Not use it for sin. And he would spend it in all means of goodness. And in fact, this, what the messengers mentioned here, there's another hadith in which the Messenger of Allah he mentioned when he went out on an expedition with some of the companions and he said, Inna bil rijalan la rijalan ma sirtum masiran wa wadiyan illa kanu ma'akum illa sharakukum fil ajar. 
Indeed, As the Messenger of Allah he said in another hadith in which we find the same uh, principle where he left with the companions to go on an expedition and he said indeed there is in Al-Madinah there are men who whatever journey you are embarking upon and whatever valley you cross then they are with you, they are present with you, even though they are in Medina. And they will share with you in the reward. And then he said that indeed they were prevented from coming because of an illness or because they had an excuse. So the point being, just like in the hadith about the one with knowledge but no wealth, right? If you have a truthful intention to do something that maybe a wealthy person is doing or the person who's gone out on an expedition is doing, then you are equal in the reward. Right? So this principle is found in other hadiths as well. In any case, let's come back to the, to the hadith. So we have two categories of people. The one who's be, been given knowledge and wealth. And he spends the wealth in what is beneficial. And this is the greatest of the levels. The second person only has knowledge but no wealth. 
but he is truthful in his intention. And if he had the wealth, he would do the same thing that this other person is doing. So they are equal in reward. Then he says the third type of person in relation to wealth, وَعَبْدٍ رَزَقَهُ اللَّهُ مَالًا وَلَمْ يَرْزُقْهُ عِلْمًا فَهُوَ يَخْبِتُ فِي مَالِهِ بِغَيْرِ الْحَقِّ لَا يَتَّقِي فِيهِ رَبَّهُ وَلَا يَسِلُ فِيهِ رَحِمَهُ وَلَا يَعْلَمُ لِلَّهِ فِيهِ حَقَّهُ فَذَلِكَ بِأَخْبَثِ الْمَنَازِلِ so this third one is a servant to whom Allah has given wealth. But he did not give him knowledge, meaning knowledge of the religion. So he squanders and wastes and stumbles in relation to his wealth upon other than the truth, meaning he squanders and wastes his wealth. He doesn't fear his Lord with respect to this wealth, how he uses his wealth. He does not use his wealth to... You know, keep the ties of his family together, meaning to give them charity and so on and so forth, and to keep the ties together. And nor does he give from his wealth what is the right of Allah, meaning the, the, the charity and so on and so forth. This one is the most evil, the akhba, the, the most repugnant of, of the levels, of the, fall, of, of the levels. Right? So this one has the wealth, no knowledge. But he uses the wealth in, you know, he squanders the wealth, he wastes the wealth, uh, he doesn't use it for good causes, and he doesn't fear Allah with respect to this wealth. So this is the third type of person as it relates to wealth and knowledge. The fourth type of person, Mu'abdin, لَمْ يُعْتِهِ اللَّهُ عِلْمًا وَلَا مَالًا فَهُوَ يَقُولُ لَوْ أَنَّ لِي مَالًا the fourth person is the one whom Allah gave no knowledge, didn't give knowledge to, nor did he give wealth to him. But he says, he looks at, he looks at the third person who has the wealth and who wastes the wealth and who does not fulfill the rights of Allah with respect to the wealth. He says, if only I had the wealth of so-and-so, then I would have done the same as so-and-so. If I had his wealth, then I would do the same as so-and-so. And the messenger said, uh, you know, the, the, well, he, he is the same. He has the same sin as the third person. So this is a person, for example, he's got no knowledge, he's got no wealth, and he sees this one, you know, this guy showing off in his Ferrari, and this one, you know, uh, squandering his wealth on sinful things and this one doing haram things with his wealth and this one doing that and he thinks if I had the same thing I would be doing I, I'd be doing the same I would do the same thing as what he's doing I'd buy this and I'd do this and I'd pursue my desires and I'd do this so this person no knowledge no wealth but if he had the wealth he'd do all the sins and all the disobedience and squander and waste the wealth just like this third person so these people now are equal you know in 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 their sin so this is an amazing beautiful hadith in dividing people into four categories as it relates to wealth and knowledge allah has given some people wealth and knowledge they use the wealth in what is good allah has given some people only knowledge not wealth 
so they by way of their good and sincere intention can receive the same reward as the ones who actually have and use the wealth even though they don't have the wealth they are the same and Allah has given some people no knowledge but lots of wealth and they squander the wealth and use it in haram and sin and disobedience and they don't fear Allah with respect to it and in the fourth category no knowledge no wealth and they crave for the wealth so they can do the same thing which the third person is doing with the wealth which is squandering wasting doing haram things sin disobedience and you know these these are from the you know the most evil of categories of people so this hadith is an explanation of the other hadith in which the messenger said by allah it is not poverty that i fear for you the most but it is it is the world and riches and wealth and affluence right so the world opens up for you you start competing for the world and its possessions and then you basically are diverted and you forget the hereafter right so which means that poverty and scarcity is not a bad thing this is not what the messenger feed for his companions he feed more riches because riches make you make you soft like in term, meaning weak and it makes your hard to be hard make your heart to be hard because as you you know use the wealth and, and eat from it and relax and enjoy and you know your heart is diverted away from Allah and your heart becomes hard this is a greater tribulation than actual poverty in poverty you become strong you become resilient you become motivated you start thinking of how to make bring yourself out of poverty right and you are always on the go this is good for building a resilient skill reliance upon allah it is riches that and, and this is known through the history of nations as well that riches cause a nation to decay and to rot and to then collapse in upon itself and that's what happens with 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 with, with nations with 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 affluence and riches you know when when they when they don't have tawhid and the sunnah and taqwa of Allah and so on and so forth anyhow this brings us to an end of this uh, tremendous mighty hadith the shaykh uh, rahimahullah may reward him tremendously has extracted many useful benefits for us out of this hadith he mentioned four benefits the first benefit that we mentioned is with respect to the ruler and the things he has at his disposal as a ruler in terms of you know making treaties or calling to Allah or engaging in battle or uh, you know uh, allowing taking jizya from people to give them protection the ruler has all of these things at his disposal on the basis of what is in the best interest of of the muslims and islam and so on and so forth the ruler has that uh, you know he has that right to do that uh, secondly second very important benefit uh, the sheikh mentioned was to do with uh, how a muslim does not expect no one is obligated to put food on your table you are the one responsible for putting food on your table even the government doesn't have a duty to put food on your table right so a muslim society doesn't work at tawhid and the sunnah and everything else the way uh, things are it doesn't work like in a socialist communist collectivist society right where the people uh, the men have been emasculated and you know become wimps 
and think that the government is somehow obligated to put food on it. No, it doesn't work like that. And those assumptions that are found in socialist communist societies, they don't exist in a Muslim society. And Muslim scholars have written about this and refuted the foundations and principles of this corrosive socialist mentality of equal distribution of wealth for everybody. No, there's no such thing uh, in, in, in Islam. There is zakah and there is sadaqah. There is zakah and there is sadaqah. The third benefit that the Sheikh mentioned is in relation, again, in relation to, um, once again, uh, the ruler, and that he gives what he's able to give uh, from the Baytul Mal. And um, finally, the fourth benefit that we finished was the issue of uh, wealth and not being put to trial by way of wealth. And the Sheikh mentioned the hadith of four categories of people, how wealth is a trial, and you should try to be, either you are the first person or the second person, don't be the, th don't be the third or the fourth person, right? So if you have knowledge and wealth, alhamdulillah, use the wealth for Allah's cause, for good things. If you don't have wealth, but you have knowledge, alhamdulillah, have a good, sincere intention, genuine sincere intention, and you will get the reward of, 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 the, of the rich people. Uh, but don't be the third or the fourth person. You have wealth and no knowledge, you squander the wealth and use it in haram. Or the fourth person who has neither wealth nor knowledge and he craves to do you know, sinful things with the wealth he doesn't even have. Don't be from those two, last two categories of people. Anyhow, that brings us to an end of this uh, lesson, of this lecture. And we'll conclude there. Walhamdulillahi rabbil alameen wa sallallahu ala nabina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in.